0: So our next uh, parallel discussion session will be uh, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, AIIB. As a reminder, the fire exits are located at the side and at the back of the theater and marked by the green signs. If you hear the alarm in case of an emergency, please evacuate immediately through your nearest exit and do not use the lift. Uh, This session will be chaired by Professor Kerry Braun, who is the professor of Chinese studies and the director of Lao China Institute and King's Cross, uh, sorry, King's College London. (laughs) My apologies. (laughs) And also, we'll be joined by uh, Professor Danny Kwa, Miss Natalie Lichtenstein. Uh, We'll also be speaking on this panel. Let's welcome Professor Kerry Brown to open the session. Thank you.
1: That was an LSE plot. That was an LSE plot. (laughs) I tell you. We try and make peace. We reach across the strait, the Kingsway Strait. <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm very new to King's College, um, and uh, so, so I, I think that's forgivable. I did come from the University of Sydney, but I was originally at uh, Chatham House in London um, before, so that's my background. Um, what I'm going to do is, for just ten minutes or so, um, I'm going to set the scene. But I'm not a specialist on the AIIB, and we have speakers who are way more uh, qualified to speak about it and what its um, intentions are and what it's actually doing, uh, and also its economic implications. But I will um, talk broadly about the context, the geopolitical context. I think that's something that is obviously of interest. Um, One of the striking things about the Xi Jinping leadership is it is, in terms of foreign policy, incredibly ambitious. There have been a lot of promises made. I mean, Xi Jinping in the last 12 months has been to something like 15 countries. That's four more than Obama. Um, And, you know, this is quite um, unprecedented, the ways in which Chinese foreign policy now is very outward-looking. I suppose it's not... I mean, it's something we should have expected because China's role uh, economically is increasingly important, and something like 140 countries have China as their main trading partner. And therefore, there should be a narrative of what China means, particularly to its region and to the broader world. Now, with the 56-57 membership, I think, of the AIIB at the moment, we are looking, I suppose, for a kind of geopolitical narrative. There is a suspicion, uh, obviously, in America's response and Japan's response, too, there being a geopolitical narrative that the AIIB, therefore, represents a kind of declaration of intent because of China's very important role in initiating and now guiding this organization. It is therefore a really big piece of evidence. What does it show, not only about China's geopolitical intent, but also about its capacity? Well, I think I'll answer that in in two pieces, about its geopolitical intent, what kind of evidence the AIIB offers, uh, and then really about capacity. And I think that those are going to be quite different. Um, Clearly, China has an enormous amount of knowledge about helping the world to develop. I mean, it's over the last 36, 37 years under reform and opening up, it has accrued an enormous amount of information and knowledge about how to develop. I mean, I don't think anyone can really deny that. Uh, And it has built an enormous amount of infrastructure. It has built an enormous amount of capacity And therefore, these are things that it can share. It's in a very good position to share with other countries in the region or other countries at a similar stage of development. Um, It is interesting that there are no African members of the bank at the moment. Uh, I mean, maybe that's deliberate. Maybe that's um, because it covers the Asian region. Although, then why are there Europeans involved? Um, You know, it seems to be uh, a bit of a kind of... uh, I suppose I know there are no African members. Is that right? There's south Africa South Africa okay so the member so that's the brick the brick kind of angle um, but apart from south Africa there are fifty three other members uh, uh, other African countries there are no other members um, so you know as, as a sort of way in which China is conveying knowledge about development and a philosophy of development, I guess the AIIB is interesting. Um, the philosophy of development of course is contentious there are issues about whether China really has promoted a sustainable model. Um, I noticed on the AIIB website, I looked at this morning, in fact, the AIIB website is a bit out of date. I mean, it's, it's kind of... Um, some of the information on there, it talks about when it has its first meetings and what have you, and I mean, obviously, these have happened in the last month. Um, so it talks about this idea of lean, clean, and green, a uh, rather clunky phrase, um, But, I mean, has the Chinese development model model been lean, clean, and green? It talks about zero tolerance for corruption. Uh, Again, you know, obviously, uh, there have been big issues about corruption within China, even though uh, Mr. Wang Qishan and the Central Discipline Inspection Commission are cleaning that up, or or meant to be cleaning that up at the moment. Um, But I think that there is a huge battle, I suppose, for the world to be convinced, or some in the world, particularly in America, and Japan to be convinced that China, you know, with its developmental model, has a kind of philosophy that can be broadly accepted and can create a new kind of consensus. The U.S. response, the White House responded, this is to The Guardian, though, this is to a British newspaper last year, why it didn't want to become a member. Um, And it said that there was, you know, a huge need within the Asian region for enhancing infrastructure investment But it then went on to say in the statement that there are concerns about whether the AIIB will meet these high standards. And so I think that's the crux uh, of the American uh, response, and that is why it reportedly did give pressure to the Australians and reportedly did give pressure to the British to hold off joining. Uh, There are people, of course, in America who do think that was a mistake. Uh, On the broad issue, therefore, of whether the AIIB offers ways in which china can develop knowledge partnerships and ways in which it can share some of its developmental knowledge i guess we have to be broadly supportive and i think we can see that it does have a positive role and so on that basis i'd say that this is this is a good thing Um, what i want to say more negatively however and it would be good to hear the other members of the panel address this if they could in their remarks um There is the rhetoric. There are the grand statements that are built, uh, that are are sort of uh, promoted the AIIB uh, over the last two years since this idea appeared. And they occur in a context in which, under the leadership of Xi Jinping in China, there have been very bold narratives about China's role in the world. And these narratives have been extremely ambitious. Things like the One Belt, One Road. uh, Things like the idea of a major power's relationship with the United States, things like civilizational partnerships with the European Union, this sort of new rubric, this is uh, intoxicating rhetoric, but what does it mean? I mean, what does it really mean? When I Googled, of course, Google being the source of all knowledge, but not of obviously of tax, um, when I Googled uh, AIIB projects, I didn't find any real information about actual existing projects. I know it's new. But it seems to me that there is this issue of we know a lot about the intention, we know a lot about the rhetoric of what this project, this kind of initiative led by China might lead to. We're getting to know something about its potential governance, but where are the projects? And 200 billion committed capital, of which I think China is putting in half of that, as far as I know, and that's the start off, obviously. Uh, It could grow quite quickly, but that's not a huge amount when you think of the needs Even in the Asian region. I mean, this is sort of trillions, trillions of dollars of need. I mean, are we really kind of, you know, sort of uh, with 200 billion going to be able to go very far? The projects that I could find information about that have been talked about were possible co financing with a Malaysian partner, a possible project in Russia, a possible project in Nepal, and one possibly in Indonesia. There is, therefore, when you go from the rhetoric to actual practice, no easy narrative what is the narrative of this project? What is its kind of, you know, once we get over the excitement of looking at its, uh, you know, kind of newness and of being able to tell us something new about China when we move from the rhetoric to actual committed projects and actual practice, I don't see any sort of strong evidence that we can go from at the moment. It is all highly abstract. And I would say if you were going to give a critique of Chinese foreign policy at the moment, you do get a similar problem if this is a primarily, uh, if we can say that this is um, a, an instrument of Chinese geopolitical development, I mean, if it's an instrument of, uh, you know, Chinese international relations, if it is a sign of what kind of uh, face China is putting towards the world, but China showing leadership of being a stakeholder, um, all very, very important, well, at the moment, it is still You know, more kind of about what's going to happen rather than what's happening now. There is the dominance of rhetoric, there is the dominance of kind of all of these very, very high minded, abstract kind of commitments, but no real sense of what China is practically doing. Um, I would say that that is a a characteristic of the foreign policy uh, mindset of this leadership over the last three or four years. With all the excitement that we've had about China developing new ways of talking to the world, of talking about itself in a different kind of way, of talking about itself in a more ambitious and bolder way, despite that, it's very hard to put your finger on real kinds of examples of what China is actually doing. Uh, Is it doing things in a different way in the Asian region? Um, That may become clear very, very quickly. We may see a whole raft of new projects arising But at the moment, if you talk about today, what we see is the dominance of rhetoric, the dominance of kind of high-minded abstract commitments, but no real detail. The final thing I'll say in conclusion um, is working with 57 very different partners is going to be really, really tough. Uh, I mean, they're very diverse. If you look at the list that's on the AIAB website, I mean, this is an extraordinary kind of group of nations running from those that are very, very developed to those that are not so developed. Even with the news over the last week of, you know, kind of appointments that are happening in Beijing, uh, the British, I think, have suggested that Danny Alexander uh, be appointed as one of the vice presidents, a person who has five years experience, I think, in finance, in the political system in the UK, and before that really had none at all, and that's completely against um, the job description that was given, you know, to sort of get recruit someone, you know, this is already becoming very, very tough, and it's already becoming very, very political, and therefore there is and there must be a huge question mark over how it is, in ways that it has never done before, that China will be able to take leadership and be able to work with such different partners. It's a good thing. I mean, I think we should support it. It's a very, very, you know, it's a very important thing that China is trying to do. But I think it's going to be really, really tough. And we should not be complacent about the leadership challenges that China will face as it tries to work in ways that it has never really worked before. However, um, I am speaking from a basis with a mind contaminated, uh, uh, um, you know, uncontaminated by knowledge, completely uncontaminated by knowledge. And therefore, I feel it's very important to then get now an informed view. Uh, and so I'd like to introduce... Natalie um, Lichtenstein, who is the chief counsel for the AIIB Multilateral Interim Secretariat. So she is right at the heart of the whole system. Uh, so I'd like to now invite her to say some comments. Thank you.
2: Thanks very much. It's really a pleasure to be to be here again. I actually had the pleasure of being at, the, at this forum two years ago when I spoke about Chinese legal reform, when I knew something about Chinese legal reform. Um, and I was the opening act for uh, Professor Hui Fang, who was much more interesting and knowledgeable. But today I get to talk about something that I do know a little bit more about. Um, and I suppose the first thing I should say about AIB is that for me it will be a bank in china it is not a chinese bank i worked for 30 years at a bank in washington dc called the world bank <laughs> 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 and probably in at least your generation of education there are many things that will say the world bank is a us dominated but it is not a us bank so that may help answer the question in some of your minds, which is, why am I talking about AIB? And I think it's probably useful to the AIB story, but also to what you're about to hear. I spent my 30 years as a lawyer at the World Bank working on development projects for 20 years, particularly in East Asia and a lot of the first 15 years of, of loans to China from 1980 to 1995. But I spent the last 10 years as the chief institutional lawyer, um, on governance, internal governance. And the last 18 months I spent was on something called voice reform, which is how to enhance the voice and participation of developing and transition countries in the world bank group. So I also happen to know a little bit about the difficulties of getting large multilateral institutions to accommodate different views in the world of developing countries. So perhaps I was a uniquely qualified candidate when I was asked, would I help set up the AIB? So I've been there as a lawyer, um, and not as an economist or a politician. So, uh, you may have many more questions than I can answer on that side. But for me, where do you put AIB in the multilateral world, there's a whole series of progenitors. And let me just say a little bit about how all these different multilateral development banks are structured, because I think without seeing, you know, professor Brown has talked about the global picture and where IAB fits without seeing the development picture and where AIB fits, it's a little hard to figure out what's different and what's the same. So, for almost all of these, you basically have, I used to think of it as like a credit co op. So, you have member countries put money in, and the money goes out to other members of the cooperative. Or, in this case, it may not be the member government itself, it may be the energy company, it may be a private investment. But basically, countries put stuff in, and it goes to those countries. Most of the time, it's to the less developed members. Um, of the same group. But these are really big numbers in terms of money, and so for all of these institutions, the countries subscribe to a share, and they pay in a percentage of it. And the rest of the part that they don't pay in is a guarantee, a commitment, an irrevocable com- obligation of the country in case the bank needs money to c- pay that the rest of it in. It's never happened that any of, for any of these banks, the countries have have to, had to pay in the, what we call the callable part. Why am I taking you through this intricacy besides that it's LSE? Because where do you get the money to lend out if they don't pay it in? You borrow it in international financial markets and international financial markets don't like to lose money. So the structure of all of these MDBs is somewhat driven by bankable projects, by projects that you will lend to, and you will get the money back because otherwise the bondholders won't get their money back unless the countries have to kick in more money and the countries don't like to kick in more money and they've never had to. So the whole functioning mechanism of all of these MDBs is to some extent based on both paid in capital, but also a market driven force. And When several of these have tried to then provide funding for poorer countries that can't pay market or close to market rates or slightly close to market rates, then they've had to have special arrangements like the International Development Association, like the Asian Development Fund to have soft money come in. But basically right now, AIIB itself is structured like all of these. So what were the beginnings? Well, I think you've probably seen, this is on the website, I'm sure. Um, So just in terms of time, we're looking at uh, two years and two months in which this new organization got started. It started really with 22 Asian countries in October 2014. By May of 2015, there were 57 countries in the room. Um from all over the world, but not a lot from places other than developed countries and Asian countries. Why is that? Well, if you're only going to be able to use the money, if you're a developing country in Asia, broadly defined, there isn't a lot of interest to put money into it for Africa or for Latin America. There's some developed countries in those places that have joined. So we signed the AIB charter. We negotiated it in five months, which is actually fairly quick. Um, We signed it in June. It entered into force on Christmas Day, um, where we had um, 17 of the prospective members with over 50% of the capital. And uh, about two weeks ago, um, we had the inaugural meeting of the Board of Governors, which declared the bank open for business, elected Jin Lee Chun as the president, um, elected a board of directors, approved all the bylaws, rules, and procedures. And the next afternoon, uh, the board of directors met, approved most of the basic rules and policies, and those should be up on the website in a couple of weeks once we correct all the, the typos and things that you find when you read something for the 15th time. Um, so at the inaugural meeting two weeks ago, there were 30 countries formally represented, which is a, representing almost 75% of the capital. Um, the others were there and are waiting their country parliaments to approve the articles and to become members. So under the charter, what can AI be do? And the charter is, has been on the website since June 29th. So basically there are two things. One is infrastructure, nice words around it, but infrastructure connectivity in Asia, very large definition of Asia, which has its roots in a UN definition, but basically the purpose has to be infrastructure in Asia, purpose-driven institution, and also to promote regional cooperation. How will AIB do that? These Again, this is very similar, for example, to the Asian Development Bank Charter, the EBRD Charter, a little bit better than the World Bank Charter. Um, I had to fix something. Um, so promoting investment in Asia of public and private capital, um, utilizing its resources for development, <laughs> encouraging private investment, not just public investment, And making it, making funds available when private capital is not available on reasonable terms and conditions. Again, this is all bedrock for all of the MDBs. Let's go back a little bit. Membership. Who can be a member? Um, So any country that's a member of IBRD, you might already know that IBRD, which is International Bank for Reconstruction and Development is the technical legal name for World Bank. Um, All IBRD members have to be IMF members. Um, And then Asian Development Bank members. There are a few. Asian Development Bank Charter allows, under UN rules, some other entities to be members. So there are some ADB members that are not IBRD members. The majority are what we call regional members, which is to say in Asia. And then there are some non-regional members. So the balance right now is about 37 regional 20 non-regional, all 57 have the potential to be founding members, which is to say that they uh, will get some special um, votes and some privileges. The capital is actually 100 billion of authorized capital. 20% of that will be paid in, which is a rather large percentage. Um, In five installments, we've already got pretty much 75% of the first installment. The regional shareholding will be about 75%. Um, and the weighting of the shareholding is going to at least start with GDP. Operations and structure is going to be very similar um, to the other institutions. Um, we have tried to broaden some of the um, the clauses. In part because I saw in my World Bank experience that there were a number of times when there would be a new kind of lending or a new structure. And a lot of effort would be put into making it fit within the constraints of the bank's charter. But not as much effort would go into whether it was a good thing to do and the decision to do it. And so there are a lot of places in the AIB charter that says you can do something new, but you need to justify it to the board of governors. Why did it, we structure it that way so that the discussion in AIB will not be, how can we pervert this structure to fit the articles, but how can we make a positive decision about whether it's a good thing to do and then design it in the right way? The policies have been worked on for the last six to eight months. They've been looked at by all 57 members. They're based on the other multilateral development banks not because we couldn't be innovative, but because many of the members said, we want you to have similar standards to the other multilateral development banks. So we have looked very carefully at all of them. And again, sound banking principles, open procurement, complying with environmental and social impacts, all very similar to the other institutions. The financing terms again, the, again, similar, I will not, were you with that. And there are a few things where we've tried to modernize the finance, because many of the financial provisions I discovered were still drafted the way they were 70 years ago for the World Bank. If you think about how much the financial world has changed since 1944, you will realize that we needed to do some updating. There are two levels of decision-making, as in the other institutions. There's a Board of Governors which when all 57 countries have ratified, will have 57 members and there'll be one governor for each member and usually they meet once a year. And most of the powers are delegated to the board of directors. There are some things that have to be decided by the governors and you know those will be decided either in the annual meetings or by mail. The most interesting part I think of the governance that has been focused on outside and inside is the Board of Directors. So AIB will have a Board of Directors of 12. That's the same size as the Asian Development Bank and a little less than half the size of the current World Bank Board. World Bank has 188 countries, almost 189 now I think as members. ADB has something like 67. A European Bank for Reconstruction and Development also about 60 something nine regional, three non-regional. The most important thing everyone has focused on is that it will be non-resident. You might wonder, why is that a big deal? So for the other, not all, but the big multilateral development banks, the board of directors, for example, sits in Manila or sits in Washington. In Washington, they meet every Tuesday and Thursday. They meet in committees on Monday and Wednesday. I don't think their are meetings on Fridays except in emergencies. They look at everything. So what's management's role? What's the board's role? Do you know what the budget is for not just 25 directors, but 25 alternates and at least three to 10 people in each office? So a very large budget, part of the lean, clean and green is having a non-resident board with quarterly meetings and electronic meetings in between and voting without meetings. How they're going to make that work will be very interesting, but I think it is a way of working in the modern world. And that is something that people have focused on as being different. The board of directors role, again, is fairly similar. There are some specific provisions for the board's role in terms of setting up policies, deciding on bank operations, and this whole interesting question about trying to set up a special oversight mechanism that will balance out the non-resident board. I think there is a sense that oversight was about physical presence, and I think oversight actually might be better done in other ways. So I see that my time is about up, but of course I could answer questions later. If you asked me what were the important things, the innovations in AIB, the non-resident board, the way this transitional governance has been arranged. We've had all of the members participating, whether they've signed or not signed in all of the policy discussions. We've got more flexibility, as I explained, on things like setting up subsidiaries, new types of financing. We've updated the currency provisions. We have a disclosure provision. And the one thing we have that nobody else has is there's a gender clause. Hmm. It says that any references to one gender will include any gender. And my Hmm. friends from law school know who drafted that
3: one.
2: (laughs) Thank you.
1: Yeah, so now we have Danny, um, who needs no instruction because he's from this parish. <laughs> Thank you very
3: much. It's, it's a great pleasure to get to participate in this forum and, in particular, on this panel. I am in awe of the level of detailed knowledge that Natalie has of the institution we're describing. And Kerry Brown is someone that I have long admired from a distance. His writing is powerful, he is knowledgeable. He's given us just a brilliant start to, the, to this panel. I first met Carrie actually in Beijing when we were at a conference together. And I'll tell you what I thought then.
1: Oh, God. <laughs>
3: <laughs> the martial arts actor, Jet Li, Yali, um, is a brilliant martial artist. And he said that, you know, we should not misunderstand martial arts. When we say kung fu, we don't just mean fighting martial arts. You can have cooking kung fu, you have laundry kung fu. <laughs> I remember looking at Kerry and thinking, Kerry Brown, his kung fu, <laughs> <laughs> he is an extreme expert. There are three points I want to make in the time I have discussing the AIIB. The first is that we need to constantly remember it is new. Yes, it has been mentioned since 2013. Concrete steps were taken in 2014. Its first meeting was last month. Jin lichun was installed as its president last month. And when we expect a fledgling institution like this with great hopes, we need to similarly moderate what we see of its trajectory, of what it has accomplished. Its accomplishments are already huge. I'm not as critical as Kerry is on the different projects that it's not yet put in place because it is one month old. And not that this is an excuse, but when I tried to set up the Southeast Asia Center at LSE, I was in discussion for two years. It took me six months to put together its website, and I only employ one other person. <laughs> the AIB is an order of magnitude different, and we need to be a little bit forgiving, I think. The second thing in this first category to note to to remark about the AIB, and I'd be interested to see whether Natalie agrees is that it's actually quite small in the family in the universe of institutions that have been put up all the different BDs and the DBs that appear now the AIIB at inception has a balance sheet of a hundred billion US dollars now, maybe it's a bit more than that but a hundred billion basically the ADB, the Asian Development Bank, is already 160. The World Bank is 250. The IMF is a trillion. The AIIB is a small player in this. And we should not be looking at its numbers or its projects to try and gauge whether it is successful, whether in the remit that it set up for itself or in changing the landscape of global governance. The third thing and this reinforces something that Natalie says, is that this is not a China bank. It's not even a BRICS bank. There is something else called the BRICS bank. That's the BRICS bank. This is the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. It's got 57 members. It is meant to be about multilateral collaboration. It's not about China weighing in, asking or demanding that something be done. It is about working in concert with at least 57 other sovereign nation states, and probably dozens more in building the kinds of projects that are on offer here. This takes me to the second of the points I want to make. We've talked about what it is. We've talked about its features. What is its narrative? Well, its narrative is what it says on the tin. It is the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank what could be more transparent than that? It's got four terms in it. It tells you exactly what it wants to do. Now, of course, beyond that, there's all kinds of different slippages going on. And it is, you know, it is that grander vision that sits behind it that gives rise to the controversy. But if what it keeps to is simply infrastructure investment, there's actually something very concrete in this. Yes, it might be that the institutions in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere also have infrastructure investment in in mind. The Asian Development Bank also has infrastructure investment in in mind, but some of the older institutions have seen mission creep. They are no longer so singly focused. The Asian Development Bank has a narrative about poverty reduction. It's got a beautiful story about poverty reduction. It is one that you know, I firmly subscribe to, and infrastructure investment has to be part of that. But it is not the only thing that the ADB does. And in fact, when you unpack it, this idea for infrastructure investment comes from the ADB and others. For a long time now, for at least a decade, the ADB has had on its documentation, in its website, on its papers, the statement that Asia needs infrastructure. They will tell you Asia needs 800 billion US dollars of infrastructure investment every year for the next 10 years. We're talking 8 trillion US dollars. And when you stack that against what the AIIB's balance sheet is, 100 billion, it couldn't even do two months of the first year of what's needed if it put all of its resources into infrastructure investment. It is the merest tip of an iceberg but it has a story. Now stacked against that story, of course, are the criticisms that have been made of it. We all know how the United States for a long time now has been critical of what the AIIB structures might turn out to be, that it will lower environmental standards, it will not be sufficiently aware of of procurement safeguards, lending requirements will be relaxed. In a word, it will lead to a more corrupt world. There will be Cronies built along the way, and all this money will go to no good purpose. I'm from Malaysia. I know what government corruption is. <laughs> and right now, it is cheap talk in both directions. Those who are critical of the AIB will say what they do, but nothing's been put in place yet. The AIB will, of course, find it just as easy to then say, no, we will, as Kerry says. We'll be clean, lean, and green. We will take care of all of these things. But right now, you know, it is cheap talk going in both directions. And we need to go beyond this stage to look at what's actually happened. Let me conclude by my third point. Because I've told you about the numbers. I've told you about the narrative. And I told you that what I think we – there's very little yet to see, but – one is hopeful or one is pessimistic, depending on one's experiences. I mean, Martin Wolf himself pointed out to the United States that, you know, it was quite rich coming from the United States uh, that there might be support of corrupt regimes, of political powers that were friendly to the U.S., could be kept in place, even though those regimes were actually quite cruel to their own people. So, embedded in there, is that there's a larger issue at stake here. Some of that larger issue became manifest when last uh, year, as the United Kingdom was on the verge of putting in its application to be a potential member of the AIIB, the United States stood up and accused the United Kingdom, its longest ally ever, of constant appeasement of a rising power. There was something very large at stake here. It wasn't just signing up to a tiny cousin of the ADB who was going to be building bridges. Something else very large was going on. What is that very large thing going on? You know, I, for these things, I always go back to Francis Fukuyama. Francis Fukuyama, in the collapse of the Soviet Union, declared the end of history. And he, his writings and others have led people to thinking that the version of liberalism and democracy that Fukuyama describes is the only viable solution to the long-term problems of human history, that there is a war in the space of ideas out there, that the AIIB, small and new that it is, concrete in its narrative that it is, is challenging. It is this space of ideas that matters. And Fukuyama himself, just um, last month, weighed in again. And this helps us think about what the AIIB's significance is. Fukuyama wrote just earlier this month, actually, China's model, he's thinking about the AIIB, is based on massive state-led investments in infrastructure. China builds roads, ports, electricity, railways, and airports, and these facilitate industrial development. That is its model of development, and that's what it wants the emerging economies to be thinking about. American economists, Fukuyama goes on to say, don't think this way. He said, we focus on investments in public health, in women's empowerment, in support for civil society, and in anti-corruption measures. Now, never mind, the empirical reality is actually not as distinct. The two development models aren't as separate. You know, it was as late as the 1970s that the United States was embarked on building the U.S. federal highway system. And what was that done with, but massive state-led investment. It's been a huge success. And it is China, after all, that for decades has talked about women holding up half the sky, and is even now on this brutal anti-corruption campaign. The difference between these two is not stark. But what the four words Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank puts on the table in this space of ideas is now a competition. It's a competition for how we do development. That's where I think the AIIB sits most critically. Thank you very
1: much. Great. Well, thank you um, very much, both of you, for really informative and helpful presentations. So I have a question for both of you, um, as economically uh, uh, people who, who are uh, expert in economics way more than I am. Um, when, when you talk about the market, uh, as economists, it seems to me you know, there is this sort of problem of what does the market mean and what is China's understanding of the market and what's, what's our understanding of the market. And I suppose something like the AIIB is the place where this sort of dialogue, because it involves a lot of other partners, becomes um, kind of more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, with the Shanghai Stock Exchange, despite what the Chinese government said in 2014 about, um, you know, perfecting the market uh, in the plenum, I think, that year, It's clear that the Chinese government now does still believe in intervention. It will intervene. Um, Do you, Natalie, think that's a problem, that the Chinese government, as a very important partner in the AIIB, has a philosophy of the market which is tolerant of government intervention or state intervention in ways which it's not shared um, internationally, that there isn't an international consensus or an AIIB, AIIB um, consensus on what is the market and what is rational or irrational intervention and again it would be he- good to hear Danny's comments on that too.
3: You go first.
2: Well first of all as, as my many clients will tell you I'm not an economist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a lawyer. Um, but to sort of divide my reactions in two ways. First I want to be clear that the market I was talking about was the financial markets um, and to the extent that if you borrow money Um, and you have a decent credit rating to do it, that the financial markets will price that based on their confidence in you and on what you're doing with the money and on the likelihood that they'll get it back. So that part of the market, I think, is well understood if you're going to borrow, um, internationally. In terms of AIB's projects, which, as you point out, are not posted yet. I'm as the lawyer, I'm actually somewhat relieved because I really did think the policy should be approved before the guys designed the projects. And I know the truth lies somewhere in between, but, um, I'd be glad if they followed the rules first, um, different members will have different views about the market and what its role should be in their countries. Um, and they may have a different view about what it should be in other countries. But in terms of what role the organization's members have in commenting on the economies of other countries, I think I at least see kind of a trajectory of these institutions that I put up there. So if you start talking about what happens at the IMF board... What the IMF does, in fact, is to do an annual assessment of the economy in every member developed and developing. Um, and the board does discuss those and they do have a view. And I can imagine that in those debates, the fact that China and some other countries, actually in their 188, have different views about the market and what its role should be, comes out in those debates about what's, what does the fund think about the economy. The World Bank does not even have that role, but they do have annual country economic reports of countries that borrow from the bank. They don't look at the developed ones. And again, evaluating the progress a particular country has made, I think your picture uh, has gotta be influenced by what you see the role of the market. Way down somewhere, uh, we don't know where yet, ICAIB, Um, I think AIB is going to be sector-focused, infrastructure-focused, not country-focused. So I would expect the AIB board, when it discusses projects, to discuss the project. Now, even as a lawyer, I can say there's no good project in a lousy sector, right? So you're going to have to look at it in the whole context. But your focus is not going to be what's the proper structure for that economy. It's not divorceable. I mean, obviously the two are interrelated, and if you look at the 57, you know, they'll have different views. I suspect France has slightly different views than maybe Germany does about the role of the market, for example, Um, at a different level than if you put China and the U.S. and what they're saying. So it's not to say it's not an issue, but I think it's actually kind of an interesting issue. (laughs)
3: Okay, the, thank you for the, uh, bringing in the discussion of the Shanghai and Shenzhen Stock Exchange and the actually very unfortunate, unhappy experiences that all of us have had. No one comes out of this experience looking good, I think. Um, the, it was, it's very optimistic that we want to think that we should run our markets, our financial markets in particular, based on principles. Um, Those principles about financial markets come from economic thinking that says that, on the one hand, you want financial markets to be healthy, well-functioning, because, look, they allow a source of revenue for businesses that's different from going to stodgy banks who, who don't like to take risk. The markets will appropriately price risk, and your good idea will get rewarded. Second, in China in particular, it gives a vehicle for savings for the poor Chinese consumer who is otherwise repressed by a financial system whose interest rates are kept low, and so Chinese savers don't get the proper returns on on what they ought to. to. Now, this view, this idealization, is an economic idealization. And it says that when we look at markets, not only are they used as an instrument to improve economic well-being, markets, financial markets, are a mirror that help us understand the health of the economy. And in that light, what's happened with Shanghai and Shenzhen reflects extremely badly on the state of China's economy. That's the idealization. What's wrong with that picture? Well, Here's what's wrong with that picture. The view that financial markets properly reflect the health of the economy comes from the idealization that how financial markets trade is the exchange and interaction between myriads, many, many millions of well-informed traders. They go into markets having read corporate reports, understood the way interest rates are going to go, understand the state of the global economy, and then they take an appropriate position on the Shanghai A bonds or Shanghai A instruments. That's not what happens in China. Most of China's traders in the financial markets are retail investors, they're mom and pop investors. They spend zero time thinking about corporate reports. They're in there because it's a casino. They think they can make a lot of money. They want to go in there, they get out quick. This is a characteristic not just of China's financial markets, but of many financial markets across the emerging world. China's financial markets are thin. Shanghai and Shenzhen, even at their peak, were 40% of China's GDP. Contrast that with Western advanced economies, where our stock markets are 120%. Of our annual GDP, China's markets are thin; they are a casino. And even in Western advanced economies, Paul Samuelson, the great American economist, said that you know, our Wall Street Journal, our Wall Street market sorry, our Wall Street, our Wall Street financial market, is such a good predictor of the state of the economy. In the last twenty years, it's already predicted nine of the five recessions we actually had. Even in the West, nobody thinks that financial markets are really that accurate a barometer of the wealth. And yet we turn around and we apply this to criticize China when its poor set upon policy regulators try and make do with a thin, volatile financial market. You know, there is a market fundament there is some practitioners, some observers say that we should have we should take the view I'm not accusing you, Carrie, of this, but we should take the view of market fundamentalism. Markets work well when they're totally uninterrupted, unregulated. No Western economy thinks this of its financial markets now. Or if there were any that thought this, exactly zero think this after the 2008 global financial crisis. Whether it's through macroprudential regulation or circuit breakers that are actually in place in the United States, restrictions on short selling. Uh, All of us are in this dirty game of mucking about with our financial markets. And China has simply chosen parameters so that its dirty game has become more visible to the rest of us. But all of us do this. And I think it would be extremely hypocritical for us to turn around to China's policymakers and say, you muddle with your." financial markets this way, we don't accept you into our global trading system. We all do this and we should all recognize it.
2: I? Yeah. I, with my other hat on, nothing to do with AIB though, I, I think the structure of the Chinese stock markets, the last time I looked at it, which was several years ago, something like 75% of the companies listed in Shanghai are either state owned or connected to state owned. So if you wanted to come back to your vision of the last plenum saying that the market forces ought to play a bigger role the actual structure of the market also is very different from other places and might have some influence on how the government regulates it
1: thank you so i think i'll open it up now by the way how many people here have shares on the shanghai exchange (laughs) are you happy with them because I think Danny, Danny will be able to give you some advice. Okay? <laughs> he's, he's, he's in. He's in. I'm. I'm. I'm sure uh, you'll, you'll make your money back if you listen to Danny. <laughs> um, I think we have a roving microphone. Is that right? So um, maybe the gentleman over there. Yeah. Okay. If you could say who you are and then uh, the question. Thank you for the presentation. I have a question for all three of the presenters. Um,
4: knowing what we know now about AIB in your view. Do you think that there is a an element of political calculation in setting up the AIB by Beijing in trying to cultivate countries in its periphery and bring it into its orbit? And um, do you think that the AIB would give China some political and diplomatic leverage in other areas outside of AIB? Thank you.
1: Um, from your ac- from your accent, are you from Singapore? Okay. <laughs> um, is Singapore a member? Yes. Do you think there's a political calculation as a Singaporean? (laughs) You really are a Singaporean, aren't you? (laughs) Okay. um, I'm happy to go first. Yes, (laughs) certainly.
3: Speaking as completely uninformed, I'm not an insider. I'm just completely just as an outsider looking, trying to go through the entrails. If there was a, I mean, there has certainly been a political payoff, but my impression is that it is accidental. I think what emerged was a frustration with how the traditional institutions were, you know, uh, were dragging their feet through U.S. Congress and elsewhere. You know, no one's fault; it's just the system, and certain changes were not being were not being seen. And the way I've heard a very senior person describe this, not from China, describe this, he said, you know what, it looks to me like China decided to get together with a few friends and put together an institution that could get something going. And then they were surprised, because all of a sudden, major players like the United Kingdom and elsewhere wanted in on this. All of a sudden, it became something bigger than what they thought it would be. I don't think that was an insidious, shrewd calculation. They were surprised, along with everyone else. What that says is the time has come. Something different needs to to come up out there.
2: Well, in terms of political motivation, uh, certainly I'm not privy to anybody's political motivations. But as a taxpayer in a country that didn't join yet, I always assume that my government should act in the interest of the country. Um, So I would assume China's leaders were thinking about their vision of what was good for China in setting this up. And in their vision of what was good for China, presumably was more infrastructure in Asia because it would be good for China. Um, And how would you do that? The how would you do that piece, I can address from my own knowledge because if China, or probably anybody else, wanted to put that kind of money, it's let's say 30 billion, into the World Bank or the ADB, those institutions are also based on weighted voting, which is yeah. to say you get one share and one vote, and then there are a few other basic votes to equalize a little bit. So in order for China to get put more money in and get more votes, somebody else has to lose votes. Um, and the United States and the World Bank, for example, and Japan in the ADB are generally not willing without some other big, you know, feature to have their voting power reduced. Some of them, the U.S. is pretty close to its veto limit. The major decisions in the World Bank Only one actually requires an 85% majority, Mm. so the U.S. is not really going to want to go below 15%. They need to stay about 16%. Mm. So China couldn't put the money into the existing institutions and get votes for it. They could have given the money to a trust fund or something like that, but every country has some limits to how much they're willing to put money at the disposal of these institutions and not have a say over what they do with it. So I can understand the constraints and I can also see some of what I think Kerry was alluding to in his initial remarks, which is, and so what's a better thing for China in its national interest to do with the money? Put it into China Development Bank or set up a new institution that's part of the constellation of international organizations um, and join together with others? You know, history will tell whether that was a good idea or not. I have to assume it was politically motivated. I assume, you know, from what I've seen countries' positions in these institutions on different issues also are politically motivated sometimes. But, you know, we all have charters that say only economic considerations shall govern what happens. So, you keep pushing.
1: Is Malaysia a member at the moment? Yes. Malaysia is a member. Was it was it a founding member or it was? There,
2: well, at this point, there are 57 countries that signed. They all okay. have the potential of being, they either are founding members or if they, they have to complete their ratifications in 2016 to become founding members. I have heard it said and I have seen President Jin quoted as saying there are many other countries that would like to become members and when they do, they will not be founding members.
1: Great. Another, uh, maybe the gentleman in the blue, the, the, the,
0: Uh, thank you. I'm an accounting finance student from LSE, and uh, you know when accounting students heard about investment banking, they always feel so very excited, and it also insults me. Uh, so I just want to ask some questions to Professor Brown. And uh, you have said that China has uh, never been such partners, and also there's no revealing of what actually China is right now doing. But I just want to ask, what do you think is the most important function that AIIB should perform? And also, can you comment on some of your general expectations of AIIB's performance, maybe in the short run, like 5 to 10 years, or even in the longer period? Or you may just think that it's just a kind of impression, impression management of China towards the rest of the world to
1: show the growth and the prosperity of China right now. Thank you.
4: Uh, Can I ask one more question? You can,
1: Uh, yes, please, while I try and work out what I say to that one.
4: (laughs) Uh, I'm a student. I'm studying uh, at the London School of Economics. I'm studying math and economics. So as you mentioned in your speech, um, the AIAB there's uh, a few transparency. It's really tough to be successful, and it has become more practical nowadays. So I want to ask, the first question is, uh, do you think, uh, like some other international banks, the World Bank, the IMF, the ADBL, inter- independent agencies, or there are some government innovation in their decision-makings? So uh, one more question is, so.
1: Because uh, I, I need time to answer. I, ne- I need time to think about the answers to that one, too. So carry on. Okay. Carry okay. on asking questions. Oh, quick,
4: quick question, quick question. <laughs> So a few months ago, uh, the president of ADB asked the Minister of Finance in China, Lo Jiwei, uh, is, the, is the Western rules, uh, the AIIB should accord with the Western rules. Western rules is the best practice. So do you think the Western rules is the best practice for AIB? Do you think we, need, we don't need any changes for our own situation,
1: our Asian situation? Do you think we need to accord with the Western rules? Thank you. Well, um, so just just a very quick comment um, for both of them. Um, it is strange that the world's second biggest economy doesn't have, at the moment, a kind of better representation. I mean, I think this is important as such a major economy and one with important growth prospects. Um, to have China's voice strongly and its its sort of views and its philosophical outlook on uh, global organizations, I think is important. Um, so I think I, I really agree with what Nafti said about this is an opportunity, an interesting opportunity for us all to learn. You know, I, 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 it's really important that we learn through what China's doing with the leadership of this organization, the AIIB, you know, what its intentions are and... and we can learn something from that. I think everyone can learn something from that too. so I think it's a pl- it is a necessary part of developing a richer and better dialogue with China in areas where I think it has a lot of knowledge and you know it does know a lot about development um, but i don 't think it 's going to be straightforward um, and um, maybe America and Japan will eventually sign up maybe um, I think that 's important as the second and, uh, sorry the first and third biggest economies, but it doesn't look like it's going to happen very soon. Um, one just quick point, really. Um, you know, it seems that China is creating... If I was... I don't believe this, but if I was sceptical, I would say China is creating a kind of architecture of international sort of activity where the core narrative is get us away from the Americans. They're driving us nuts. Um, <laughs> BRICS. You know, the BRICS Bank. um, I don't know if it's that active, but BRICS. You know, what's not there? America. Um, The Shanghai Cooperation Organization. What's not there? America. Uh, AIIB. What's not there? America. Um, And I I suppose that might be because of America not wanting to engage, or it might be because Beijing, China, uh, wants a world away from America. However... Whether that is the intention or not, alas, you know, China will not be able to escape America. And so at some point, you know, there will have to be a deeper cooperation in this area. It's really in the world's interest. In environment, China and America seem to be able to talk in a similar way. Mm-hmm. Um, in this area, I think they're going to grow closer to each other, I'm sure. And the quicker they do that, the better. But at the moment, it seems that the narrative from Beijing is, please, 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 America, leave us alone. And that's not going to happen. The worst thing, you know, of course, the worst thing is to have America's dislike, but far more frightening is to have America's love.
2: (laughs) Well, as far as I can tell from what I read in the papers, uh, the U.S. was certainly asked many times, to participate in AIB, and it was through the U.S. decisions that it hasn't at the moment, although, again, living in a place where there's uh, what you would call parliamentary stalemate, um, even if the administration had wanted to, I think there's a a snowball's chance that that might have happened. Um, But I also think that... um, And the question of best practice, and do you have to have the US as a member to have best practice, Uh, let's put it this way. We have the UK as a member, Germany, France, Switzerland, Denmark, Netherlands, Sweden, Uh, who have I left out? Um, I have seen no evidence that those countries have taken a different view on the policies and procedures in AIB than they have in any other multilateral development bank. Whether that is best practice, Lo has a point, because I don't—I looked up best practice because somebody wanted to put it in the charter, and I couldn't find a definition of it. So <laughs> we—if you look in our chief negotiator's report, it talks about international good practices or something like that. But, I mean, just as a personal anecdote, um, in terms of the U.S. view, I— uh, found an opportunity to shake hands with President Obama in August and introduce myself as the chief counsel for the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. <laughs> <laughs> and when he recovered his composure, <laughs> he said, We need that to work. Mm. And I said, It will.
1: Mm. <laughs> 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 oh. oh, my God. <laughs> Right, Danny. Do you want to say something? Excellent. Um, No, Natalie's already (laughs) done. Maybe the lady. um, So maybe just one final two questions. So the lady uh, in the middle, uh, wherever the mic is. So and then maybe uh, the lady sort of halfway. uh, well, Well, three three quarters of the way up. Yeah. So the lady here.
4: Hello. Thank you for the presentation. I'm a student at UCL studying economics and statistics. I noticed that another concept together with AIIB is the internationalization of renminbi. Uh, however, recently there have been r- news reporting that AIIB will only give out loans in US dollar. And consider the financial market challenges that China is facing right now, I have two questions. Uh, number one is whether the liquidity of US dollar in the global uh, economy will affect the function of AIIB? And secondly, does this uh, measure means that China I- is becoming less passionate about pushing the process of renminbi internationalization? Thank you very
1: much. Okay, and then the lady, yes, just a minute. Yeah.
4: Uh, hello, uh, I'm a master student of local economic development, and I have two questions. The first one is, uh, I wonder how do you think about the road of public-private partnership in infrastructure, and would the AIIB uh,
3: encourage it or consider it? And the second question is, uh, what is the strategy of AIIB
4: on the appraisal and evaluation of infrastructure? For example, on cost-benefit analysis, would that be a common framework or that would be a localized one? And which one do you think is more suitable and more practical for AIIB? Thank you.
1: Okay, so maybe Danny on the question. uh, Okay. Okay,
3: so the, the, the question has to do with the tension between what China intends for the internationalization of its currency, not, of course, the sole preserve of the AIIB. I mean, AIIB is, is one of a number of institutions that China is involved in building, and I, I, don't, I don't think it actually mentions the RMB in its charter. But nonetheless, it's a common perception out there about how you know, China is trying to internationalize its currency. I think two things that might be useful to point out. First is that The U.S. dollar remains the world's reserve currency. There's no two ways about it. Yes, it's true, a few months ago, China, the RMB was accepted into the bundle, into the the, the basket of, uh, the basket that makes up the IMF's SDRs, but it's still a tiny fraction of the, you know, of the volume of transactions, the quantity of assets they actually held out there. And if you want to be engaging in transactions that have high liquidity, it's the U.S. dollar that remains the name of the game. There's a very unfortunate consequence of that, I discovered. I discovered that China actually pays a lot of its... Chinese government pays a lot of its staff who are stationed overseas in fixed quantity of RMB, but it pays them in U.S. dollar equivalents. The consequence of that is that when the RMB declines against the U.S. dollar, you induce severe bouts of depression among Chinese government servants outside of China, they look at their take-home pay, and they go, where is my country going? My take-home pay is getting smaller and smaller. It should stop doing that for the, what it pays its civil servants. But in terms of what the AIIB is going to uh, engage in financial transactions, I think it makes a lot of sense, consistent with the internationalization of the RMB continuing for these transactions to occur in US dollars. There's no inconsistency.
2: So, in terms of AIB itself, its capital is denominated in U.S. dollars. That means the unit of account for AIB is U.S. dollars. The unit of account for the World Bank is the 1944 gold dollar, which has since been interpreted to be uh, some percentage of current U.S. dollars. So, the bank can still lend money in other currencies, all of the MDBs do, but I certainly would hope that they won't do that until they have a financing structure that can prevent risk um, because that is what all of these institutions are about. On the other hand, at least when I was in the World Bank, you also want to look at the currency when you look at the particular project and to see what makes the most sense. In any case, the borrower is going to take the currency risk, not the bank, but you have to look at what facilities you have available for hedging, et cetera. So in terms of the capital of the bank, it's still U.S. dollars. Um, I expect that because the headquarters is in Beijing, we'll have a lot of expenses that will be in Renminbi. Um, And I did head for the ATM a couple of weeks ago when I was in Beijing. But um, Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, in terms of the institution, that that's not going to change In terms of public-private partnerships and appraisal standards, again, I think those will be completely based on best practice. Um, Whether there's in fact a difference between ADB appraisal standards, World Bank appraisal standards, and EBRD appraisal standards, I suspect my colleagues will have highlighted that and picked one. Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't think there's any intent to reinvent the wheel where it doesn't need to be reinvented. That said, I do think that, President Jin does intend the bank to be lean, clean, and green. So part of lean is borrowing from others, but part of it is slimming down the process and seeing what you really need to do. And any institution that's been around for 50 years as the ADB or 70 as the World Bank, or 20-something or 30 for EBRD, you do get encrusted. You do have things that could be slimmed down. And so taking a hard look at those would be good. There's one other subject I forgot to cover.
1: Oh, gosh. Um, that was um,
2: appraisals. No, no you... not in the... I answered oh. that one, but I, in my slides, when I used to give this talk for the World Bank, there was always a question about jobs. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Some of you might have been thinking about that. <laughs> um, AIB will start hiring staff. They already advertised, as you mentioned, five VP jobs, nine director general jobs, and 25 other jobs, and they will all be advertised on the website. I think that part of the lean, it will be starting up slowly. I don't think we, the management wants to hire people and not have the right mix and the right pe- things to do. Recruitment is global. There will obviously be some support staff positions that may be advertised locally. Again, we're looking at the personnel policies of all the other MDBs. We're not trying to have a Chinesey version of it. Um, so you should look at the website. Um, You should not be surprised if things don't start right away. But that said, I have to say, I spent a long time in Washington telling lawyers who would apply that 75 percent of the resumes we got for every job were U.S. nationals. Mm. And you're an international organization that's looking for a broad range of nationalities. So it is very hard for U.S. lawyers to get jobs at the World Bank. That's Mm. why they stay for 30 years, because they don't want to let anybody else in. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But but equally, I have to say, I think it is going to be difficult for Chinese nationals to get jobs Mm. at AIB. There will be lots of Chinese nationals, but the competition, I suspect, will be fierce. Mm.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much. Uh, So, CVs to uh, Natalie uh, uh, by (laughs) Monday morning. Um, Danny and I will be brushing ours up, you know, as non-execs, you know. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, I really would like to thank our speakers uh, for their knowledge. And, you know, really, it's nice to have a conversation where you have people who really do know uh, what we're talking about with the AIIB rather than picking it up secondhand. Um, What really strikes me in... uh, the kind of, you know, talk about China uh, is is we, there's not many things that unify the world now. We live in a period of, you know, great complexity and division. But once you talk about renminbi, everyone starts smiling. We think of ways in which we can get hold of, uh, you know, Chinese money. And so one thing I would say as a piece of free advice to the AIIB is when you've got Britain sitting on your board and a British BP, watch your wallets. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for all the
0: speakers on this panel and uh, especially our moderator from King's College, London. So, audience who choose the panel on uh, China's foreign policy, please come back in this theater in 10 minutes. And if you choose China's ethnic policy, please proceed to the Wolfson Theater. Thank you. I, I was quite
1: struck by that. Um, uh, but, but, you know,